The Bowery Boys episode 214, The Bronx Was Burning. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With the third and final part of our Bronx Trilogy in this three-part series now, we've gone from The Bronx is Born, episode one, to The Bronx is Building, and now The Bronx was burning. And the was is an important word here, as we'll discuss later in the show. The Bronx was an example of urban decay, when the entire city was experiencing some dire economic fortunes. You mentioned it was an example. It was an example to the entire country, really, of the plight of urban areas. And the Bronx, unfortunately, showed up on the front page of newspapers and on television sets around the country and around the world, especially uh, when it came to a couple signature events in the 1970s that really cemented this unfortunate image. This is a very complicated story, but we hope to unpack a few of the reasons as to why things got so bad in the Bronx by the early 1970s, and just as importantly, how they got better. At the end of the show, Greg and I will meet with a tour guide who specializes in telling the modern history of the borough, and hopefully she'll help us get our heads around some of what is happening in the Bronx right now and, and how we got here. We have a lot of territory to cover here on the show, but stick around until the very end because we have a huge, exciting Bowery Boys-related announcement that we think that you're going to love. So from the Cross Bronx Expressway and Co-op City to Howard Cosell and Jimmy Carter. Join us as we extinguish some preconceptions and examine how the Bronx was burning. Greg, as we mentioned, this is the third part in our Bronx trilogy, um, dealing with the most modern history of the borough. Mm -hmm. Could you give us a really quick, and I mean quick this time, because last time your quick wasn't so quick. It wasn't that quick, it's no, true. No, so a much quicker overview of what okay. we dealt with in those first two episodes. All right. Well, in those first shows, we talked about the development of the Bronx from the spacious farmlands owned by the Dutch and English settlers to the first throes of urban development, mm -hmm. thanks to the railroad. Now, in the second show, we chatted about the birth of the borough itself, how the development of the subway brought new possibilities into this area, which played out with such things as brand new parks and lovely boulevards and apartment complexes along the Grand Concourse, and of course, locations of national importance like Yankee Stadium. Wow, that was faster. <laughs> well, but I'm well not, done. I'm not quite done, though. I just wanted to take that same story, but refocus it down to one particular area of the Bronx that we're going to be spending a lot of time on in this show. And that is the neighborhoods of Mott Haven, Morrisania, Port Morris, Melrose, 
west of the Bronx River and east of Grand Concourse. And this is what we call the South Bronx. Yes. Because the South Bronx is not a neighborhood, per se, but really a grouping of neighborhoods. And it seems like that that border is somewhat in flux. Yeah, I mean, Soundview, there's a lot of neighborhoods that have, have traditionally today been called South Bronx. But originally, it was this oldest developed portion of the Bronx. These original towns that were mm-hmm. created by the railroad. By 1874, they were even part of New York as a portion of the Annexed District, which was the first area to be grafted onto New York City. This area was the first to receive traditional urban development, like street grids, these lots that were filled with tenements, the same of the type that were down in Manhattan. The people lived here were mostly employed in industries along the waterfront, or they were you know, commuters, and they worked inside New York itself. Now, by 1898, with consolidation, those first residents, which were German and Irish, well, many of those moved out and were replaced with new immigrants from Eastern European and many that were largely Jewish, as we mentioned in our discussion with Lloyd Olton in the last show. Right. And he pointed out how so many Jewish families took up new residences along uh, the Grand Concourse in those beautiful Art Deco apartment buildings. Right. And those were middle class residents. Mm -hmm. But here in these other neighborhoods, east and south of the Grand Concourse, well, this, by the 1930s and 40s, had become a slum Uh uh, with poor housing, tenement buildings. It was the poorest housing in the borough. Well, in 1935, the New York Housing Authority was formed to tackle a very serious problem that was happening throughout New York City and in all five boroughs. Because what you didn't have by this time were private developers building houses for low-income families. Like, what what would incentivize them, necessarily? So so private developers didn't want to build just because the money wasn't there. It didn't make economic sense. Right. So the city and the state had to step in to energize development and to build new housing to replace some of this terrible housing in these tenement districts. Now, that's a massive story. We're just skimming the top of that story. It should be its own podcast. But... But that's going to come up a lot in this story. Mm -hmm, Sure. Now, some of this early slum clearance was led by Parks Commissioner and the Grand Master Builder of New York, Robert Moses, who would eliminate these vexing areas of town and replace it with the housing project. The people who then had lived there were either resituated into this new housing project or they moved. And the other thing to remember is that perhaps seems very straightforward, but Mm -hmm. many of the housing policies during this period were quite racist. These new units that would then be created on the land of these old slum districts would not be available for people of color. So because of these housing acts, the Housing Act of 1949 and the Housing Act of 1954, where the city was basically getting into the development game Mm -hmm. and they were buying up these lots and basically subsidizing this new development. I think what's interesting is that many of the developments were middle class developments and what they were and Mm -hmm. what they were replacing were not middle class housing. And as those new developments were going up, the people who were being displaced, whose buildings were being demolished, couldn't stay in the neighborhood. They couldn't move into the new housing yet, even if they were allowed to move into it. They, they couldn't move in yet because it wasn't finished. So it would take years to build mm-hmm. these structures. So where did they go? So the Bronx was one location because you still had a lot of affordable housing up here. And... Mm-hmm. 
as a result, the the population changed, the the ethnicity, the demographics changed up here starting in the 1950s, including a new group of immigrants who were coming into New York by the 1950s. Those would be the Puerto Ricans who came in a mass wave after World War II by the by the thousands. African-Americans and other Hispanic immigrants also moved into this area in larger numbers starting in the 1950s for many of the similar reasons. Mm -hmm. So these groups from the Lower East Side East Village, from Hell's Kitchen, from elsewhere in New York, seeing their quote-unquote slums being demolished, are moving up to the southern part of the Bronx and into the oldest housing in the entire borough, the oldest cheapest housing. Again, keep in mind, because of very segregationist policies, there just weren't as many places for people to move into. So this became one spot where they could find affordable housing. But what happened to the people who lived in these areas of the Southern Bronx originally? Well, this gets us into this notion that keeps returning to the show here, especially when you talk about the 1950s and 60s, the idea of white flight, Mm. because as these demographics were changing and there was an encouragement to move out to the suburbs, that the people who had been living here before, like those residents with Eastern European backgrounds, they were being incentivized to essentially move out. And one of those big incentives being uh, that the U.S. government was making it much easier, especially for returning soldiers after World War II, to get first-time homebuyer mortgages um, and and buy, you know, their ideal American dream-style house with their mm-hmm. little yard and their, their garage. How could these apartments in the Bronx that, remember, many of these were rentals, mm-hmm. how could those compete with the idea, uh, this American ideal of home ownership? Now, pretty much everyone that we spoke to in this whole series, Tom, said something a little slightly different so that it wasn't necessarily white flight, but rather a more nuanced version of that class flight. Because the people who were leaving weren't all one particular demographic, that you already had African-Americans and Hispanics living here that were moving out because they were just making more money and they were also being incentivized to move out to the suburbs. So it was residents moving up the socioeconomic ladder who were then moving farther north. So you're talking about these huge demographic shifts in the South Bronx, was this also happening in, in other parts of the borough? I mean, in, in fact, it's happening all over New York City through, to various degrees. Here in the Bronx, other neighborhoods would be a little bit more either immune or protected from some of these socioeconomic changes. Like, for instance, up in Riverdale and the neighborhood of Spite and Dival, just a little south of it. So this is the old estate of Frederick Phillips, remember mm-hmm. from our very first episode. So these two neighborhoods comprise that. Didn't he build that, that bridge? Oh, yes, of the King's Bridge. Well, during the 50s and 60s, dozens of five to six story apartment complexes were built and mostly for the middle and upper middle class. Additionally, a little south of Fordham University, after the war, there developed a very thriving Italian community, which formed along a particular avenue in Belmont, the neighborhood of Belmont, that avenue being, of course, Arthur Avenue. 
you know, like any other migration, this became populated specifically with Italians, many Italians from Manhattan's Italian quarter, the old Little, Little Italy. Italy, right, and even Italians from further south in the Bronx, sort of coalesced around this particular area. And, and so they formed their own ethnic enclave. Right. You can still see and experience and enjoy vestiges of the Italian immigration uh, t- still today. It's a you can have a great meal at any number of restaurants there. It's a bit of a time capsule of the Bronx, I think, but vestige of the Italian heritage still remains there today. Okay, but hold on a second, Greg, because at the end of the last show, I spent quite a bit of time setting up this whole issue of traffic mm-hmm. and the fact that the the city was grappling with this issue of how to get people from point A to point B, specifically from, let's say, the George Washington Bridge over to the Triborough Bridge and to the highway that headed up north to New England. And we left with Robert Moses presenting a plan for his cross Bronx expressway, which would require the removal of a giant swath of apartment blocks. Now, it's true that on top of all the other socioeconomic changes happening in the city and in the borough, that there are all these construction projects that are overall just making it all worse. Because, of course, these projects are helping the Bronx. They're actually guiding people past and out of the Bronx. So these are highway constructions. Mm-hmm. They're bridge constructions. They're also housing constructions. Yes. Now, the Cross Bronx Expressway in specific was built between 1940s up until the early 1970s. This was a very long gestating project, a very long expressway. What made it so particularly ruthless was that it didn't flow the highway around pre-existing neighborhoods, but in fact drove right through them, displacing people, including destroying whole communities like the one in East Tremont. There was even a public rally on October of 1953 that attempted to convince the politicians that it would be it would be so much easier just to take this highway, just have it go through the northern end of Cortona Park, where clearly no one lives in the park. Just if it needs to be built, wouldn't it be better to just take a little bit of a chunk out of the park? Well, but he was looking at a map and he was drawing a line and saying it was more efficient uh, to go from A to B. I mean, you can look at it as being efficient. You can also look at it as arrogant disregard to the community here. In many ways, this event, the building of the Cross Bronx and the destruction of East Tremont, is similar, almost. People consider it to be a a similar tragedy as the destruction of Penn Station just a few years later, because it's a certain disregard. People were living here. Yeah, it's a disregard for history, and it's a disregard for the community. But there's, of course, vast development all over the place in the mid-20th century in the Bronx. That weird, mad tangle of highways, Tom, at the Major Deegan, which was built in 1964, where it connects to the Hamilton Bridge, which Mm -hmm. was built the year earlier. On top of all that mass construction and all of these highways that are taking people along and out of the Bronx, you have all these industries continuing to shut down, all these empty warehouses along the waterfront. Because in the 50s and 60s, New York lost hundreds of thousands of jobs. So all of these factors are making the South Bronx 
worse and worse. It's become a truly poverty-stricken area by the 1950s and 60s. The city would, of course, try to fix this with even more public housing, which in the short term was very helpful. You had constructions like the ni- in 1951, the Bronx River Houses in Soundview. In 1956, the Patterson Houses in Mott Haven. You know, these These were ideal solutions at first, especially for those who were facing segregation in the housing market. What would also happen is with these housing developments is that we would learn, of course, later through social planning and and the work of people like Jane Jacobs, is that these were not ideal Mm -hmm. social spaces. Right. So they seem like they were modern, right? Because you had elevators, um, you you had modern bathrooms and kitchens Mm -hmm. and such, and they were tall, right? But they also had these awkward spaces and weird back hallways and staircases and places that were kind of dangerous. Oh, extremely. I would like to turn to a quote that I found in the memoir of Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was born in the South Bronx in 1954. And then three years later, she moved to the Bronx Dell Houses in Soundview, which were built in 1955. And This, I found, was just a very striking quote that's a sort of a harbinger to things to come. Quote, The Bronxdale houses sprawled over three large city blocks, 28 buildings, each seven stories tall, with eight apartments to a floor. My mother saw the project as a safer, cleaner, brighter alternative to the decaying tenement where we had lived. However, her grandmother disagreed to continue the quote. My mother should never have made us move here, she said, because in the old neighborhood, there was life on the streets and family nearby. In the projects, we were isolated. So in the long run, this would actually be a bad solution for many people, because what would eventually happen is it wouldn't foster suitable street life. And here we're talking about the fact that these buildings didn't physically create this sense of community, but also the fact that... By tearing down blocks and blocks, you were displacing all these people, and they didn't all find new residences in the same buildings. So you were sending entire neighborhoods off to find new housing, and they'd find it with a bunch of, in many cases, strangers. Yeah. And and so in these new buildings, entire new neighborhoods, quote-unquote, were being formed, but the people didn't have any history together. together there was right. no sense of neighborhood. And not to say that people didn't try. I mean, what gets lost in these stories is that the communities and the families that were moving in here, sure. many of them were fighting back, but they had very little resources by the 1960s and not a lot of support from the city. And of course, again, Again, still facing this crazy housing infrastructure that was very segregationist by nature. Well, into the 60s and 70s, you know, many of those factors would certainly remain in full force and things would get even more challenging with uh, even faster changes in demographics and in the economy and a, a huge spike in the crime rate as well. But I think it's very important for us to also point out that during the same period, there were also more than a million people living in the Bronx. These were families. These were kids going to school, families going to church. They were uh, fans at Yankees Stadium, people going to the Bronx Zoo and Botanical Gardens, students graduating from the various academic institutions, heading to Bronx Science. Like life was continuing even during these challenging times. And it's easy to overlook that when you're just talking about changes in demographics and the challenges that the borough was facing. The Bronx itself was still much larger than most American cities, even by 1970. 
1970 when the population of the Bronx was 1.4 million people, which was about the same as it was uh, a decade previous. However, it's interesting you bring up 1970 because 10 years later, the population of the Bronx would drop to 1.16 million. So there were more than 350,000 people who left the Bronx during the 1970s. And just another demographic point here to look at is the percentage of the population that was African-American, Puerto Rican, or Hispanic. That group in 1960 was 25% of the population, but by 1980 was 64% of the population. So there's a huge, huge shift in the ethnic makeup of the, of the borough in those 20 years. And it's an insane transformation of the fabric of the Bronx here, but unfortunately at a time when the city is now experiencing these economic woes, which are really weighing heavily in the Bronx here. Not to say that there weren't some bright spots, because it was in the early 1960s that, for example, the Hunts Point food market opened up, which really took advantage of some of the new space that was opening up in the Bronx to, to construct this massive wholesale food market, which covered 40 acres uh, with wholesalers and importers and meat markets and dealers, all of this food, you know, mo- much of the food that the city and the metropolitan area was eating was coming through the Hunts Point food market as it still is today. And today, by the way, it's gone from 40 acres up to 70 acres. So it continues to grow. So it's even more vital. It was also in 1960 that that a northeastern section of the Bronx was transformed into a theme park, Greg, called (laughs) Freedom Land. Talk about patriotic zeal. And perhaps the most awkward theme park to perhaps have in the Bronx during the 1960s, to be sure. And you did an entire solo show on Freedom Land Mm -hmm. that is available to to anybody who wants to hear a lot more on this fascinating topic. It's in the archive. I walk you through every area of that sad theme park. (laughs) But (laughs) on top of it, a certain point having to compete with the World's Fair, which was over in Queens, it was kind of actually difficult to get to. Because you could take a subway up there, but then you had to connect to a bus, and a lot of people just had a hard time with that. It was easier to head out to Coney Island. Yeah, it was doomed from the start. And it was a theme park dedicated to American history, Mm -hmm. which sounds fascinating. Like, (laughs) wouldn't we love to go to Freedom Land? Absolutely. We would probably be operating it. If we can't get this whole podcast thing uh, to work for us, we'll just be theme park operators and Uh, we'll open, we'll find some stretch of land here in Brooklyn somewhere and reopen it. Oh, I'm so in. Unfortunately, the crowds didn't come. And in 1964, Freedom Land closed. But what replaced it was a giant complex. And I mean, giant like it was super tall it's in fact the largest residential co-op development in the world called appropriately enough co-op city built between 1968 and into the early 70s it took over this much of the same land and it today houses 60,000 residents in 35 buildings in, in more than 15,000 apartments, many of the people who ended up moving into Co-op City in the late 1960s were Jewish residents who came from the Grand Concourse. They packed up and they moved out of their apartments because, again, these were rentals. And this was another thing that the Bronx had working against it. It was really easy for people to move mm-hmm. out. Because most people were not homeowners, they weren't tethered to that space, and they could leave when their lease ran up. So 
Many people believe that co-op is partially responsible for hastening the demise of the South Bronx here because of a, a mass migration out of these apartments. So you have these new public housing structures that are being built around the Bronx. You have the places like Co-op City for middle class people who are moving out of places like the Grand Concourse. But you still have a ton of old structures that are still in this densely packed area of the South Bronx. Right. And many of these old tenements uh, were in bad shape, you know. And imagine how it impacted psychologically the people who lived there and the people who owned those old buildings. Because if you were in a nearby building and you were watching as the buildings around you were getting demolished for whatever reason, say a block away, they were putting up a huge uh, public housing complex. Mm -hmm. Well, what did that mean for your building? Were you going to be seized by eminent domain by the city as well for this development? What if you were close to a giant highway being constructed? Did it mean that maybe you were going to be in the place of an on-ramp or something else was going to come along that caused the demolition of your building as well? So it led to great uncertainty. I mean, the housing was getting worse and worse and less desirable. Perhaps it was the most undesirable housing in New York City. In these old areas. And typically, you know, a landlord would see the writing on the wall. Sometimes literally. (laughs) Sometimes. I'm glad you got a joke in. Yeah. I'm good. Thank you. Yes, writing on the wall that um, that their property maybe had a limited lifespan, and then they would push really to get as much money as they could squeeze out of that building. You know, get as hot the highest rents possible, but those rents were tumbling down mm-hmm. because people didn't necessarily want to live there, and they wouldn't fix the places up. In many cases, the landlords didn't pay taxes to the city. And finally, the city would claim the building for unpaid taxes and often demolish it. And by that point, in many cases, the landlord would have disappeared. So this Mm. is sort of the process by which these buildings in these uncertain times, this is a story of how those buildings could fall into disrepair and then sort of be abandoned. Yeah, this is the true decay in urban decay because the buildings were literally deteriorating to a point that they were unlivable and were useless. Well, and landlords by the late 60s and into the 1970s were realizing In these particular neighborhoods in the South Bronx, they realized in many cases they could make more money off their buildings by having them mysteriously, say, catch fire and collect the fire insurance. It it, it got so bad that there were many cases of investors joining together to buy buildings just to burn them and profit from the fire insurance. There were tenants living in these buildings and around these Sometimes, buildings. yeah. Sometimes tenants would still be in the buildings. Um, other times, everybody would have left. And, you know, some tenants, to be fair, also had incentives to start fires themselves. Because under a law at the time, they could receive priority treatment for new public housing if their building had fallen victim to a fire. So this, you know, so there were perverse incentives from fire insurance that was too easy to get uh, to investors who wanted in on these schemes to some tenants who also saw a better future for themselves if their building would catch fire. That during the 1970s, up until 1981, one fifth of the total number of dwellings in the Bronx, more than 100,000 dwellings were abandoned in some way. and, And many of those caught fire. 
And to make matters worse, the city had cut back on the fire departments in many of these neighborhoods in the South Bronx. Because by this point, of course, the city was under a huge financial crisis and they had to cut these things back. So clearly they chose neighborhoods where the population was decreasing. And that's definitely the South Bronx. But wait, Greg, just as you sort of cast a little bit of doubt on the whole Cross Bronx Expressway is the reason that things went downhill for Mm -hmm. the borough, I also want to cast a little bit of doubt on this sort of perhaps overly simplistic understanding of how buildings fell into disrepair and were Mm -hmm. burned. Fires were also raging because these fire departments were being closed and the whole fire system, prevention system, fell into disrepair. Uh, The author Joe Flood wrote a 2010 book called The Fires, How a Computer Formula, Big Ideas, and the Best of Intentions Burned Down New York City and Determined the Future of Cities. And in the book, he, he traces the Bronx's fire epidemic to a 1971 decision by Mayor John Lindsay to close these fire departments in the South Bronx because of this financial crisis the mayor had led a team of whiz kids to use computer modeling and game theory, and they came up initially with 13 companies to close, many of these in the South Bronx, and seven new companies to open, m- many of which were in more affluent North Bronx and Staten Island neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But in the end, 50 fire units were closed or moved, and the fire department also cut way back on fire inspections and sort of routine things, right? Right. Fire hydrants didn't work, that kind of thing. So many of the fires, he Flood points out in his book, were probably caused just by things that, uh, with a normally functioning mm-hmm. fire department, would have been able to put out. But essentially, you had more fires overall and less of an apparatus to fight them here, especially in the South Bronx. But some of this was happening also in areas of Brooklyn as well. Sure. And that coupled with the insecurity of seeing your neighborhood change right before you made for a very destabilizing atmosphere. Jose Serrano, the Bronx congressman and a state assemblyman in 1977, told the New York Times in 2007, quote, What I recall more than anything else was the uncertainty of not knowing when the building was going to burn, when the landlord was going to cut back service, and when you would find yourself in a building that the landlord totally walks away from. The housing stock was going to waste and abandoned. So it's really no surprise, with all of that as the backdrop, that by the early 70s, you have a huge crime rate, you have gang activity, epidemic drug abuse being associated with this area of the Bronx. And a sense in some neighborhoods of lawlessness. Take this stat. In 1960, there were 1,700 burglaries reported in the Bronx. Nine years later, 1969, that number was 29,000. That's an incredible increase. And the busiest police precinct in the South Bronx was the 41st precinct, referred to as Fort Apache. Now, I just recently this weekend watched the movie Fort Apache, the Bronx, which is filmed in the South Bronx, and, and they use the actual precinct house. It's a movie that's it's a little dated. Paul Newman. I mean, some great actors are in it. It's, it's certainly worth watching as a historical document, but it's a very extreme version of the Bronx. So for the vivid picture that we've just painted for the Bronx in the early and mid-1970s, nothing could prepare the residents 
for what would occur on the evening of July 13th, 1977, when all of New York was plunged into darkness. We'll get to this story and the borough's response and recovery after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This episode... In the year 1990, the New York City authorities declared the wasteland known as the South Bronx to be a high-risk area. There would be no further attempt to restore law and order to that notorious borough. The South Bronx had long since been controlled by gangs with such names as the Riders, Scavengers, Iron Men, Tigers, and Sharks. To venture without permission into the territory of a rival power was to risk war. War with no holds barred. War to the death. So that was a clip from a a cult film that was made in 1982 called 1990 the Bronx Warriors. So it was like an Italian futuristic film in the style mm. of Escape from New York and the Warriors. I don't suppose you that's on your Netflix list, is it? It's not one of my favorites. I did know that you were going to play this clip, so I watched part of it, and anybody can search for it on YouTube and watch the entire movie if you can sit through that. Did you sit through that? Um, a, the portion, whole thing. a portion of it. Let's just say it's no Hunger Games, although it's sort of similar in, in theme. It's It describes the Bronx as a total wasteland. It embodies a lot of the ingrained perceptions of the Bronx by this particular time. Unfairly. Even some that are mistakenly held today by people. Now, one of the events that led to the formation of some of this poor image happened just a few years earlier from the production of the film. And that was on July 13th, 1977, when a lightning strike hitting an electrical substation caused a massive blackout in New York City, thrust them into a terrifying darkness well into the next day. Greg, one of our very earliest podcasts is on this very topic. We we taped this, I guess, what, nine years ago? Yeah, 2007. I'm sure it was a very thoughtful, nuanced uh, look <laughs> at, the, at the blackout. But the boroughs of Brooklyn and the Bronx were especially uh, hit hard by this because of the urban blight that had already happened. And because of the fact that the cities had cut back on the police and fire department. 
as, in these neighborhoods. Yeah, and as a result, what's, the, this event is distinguished by the amount of looting which happened in the Bronx. Dozens of shops were broken into. Dozens of cars were stolen during this period. And it was all, only over an evening or, or an evening and a morning. We're certainly not justifying the crime or vandalism that happened during this period. Absolutely not. But, you know, it was happening in an area which was on the edge of chaos already. And this just tipped it over on, the, on a very hot evening and in an area of vast poverty. Many people watched this happen around the world, across the country. And this really set a lot of people's opinions about the Bronx, confirming the worst about New York City in general. People were already well aware of the street gangs that were all through New York City, but especially present here in the Bronx. Gangs like the Savage Skulls, the Black Spade, the Turbans, who actually hung out on Charlotte Street in 1977, a street that, by the way, already looked like a bombed out war zone <clears throat> because of the fires and because of the destruction and everything. Charlotte Street was a street that was just lined with mounds of rubble. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to just characterize everything that's happening in the 70s here as gloom and doom. There were harrowing circumstances, but a major pop cultural phenomenon was also born here in the 1970s. As often happens with musical forms, they often rise from the street or they rise from ordinary people and under extraordinary circumstances mm -hmm. like folk music and blues. Well... I'd like to turn our attention to the address 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in Morris Heights. There would be a series of block parties here in the early 70s thrown by a man named Clive Campbell, a.k.a. DJ Cool Herc. And it was at these parties that he would consolidate a new sound that was being heard on the street. Consolidate how? Well, mixing them up on his turntables, blending sung music with rapping, mm -hmm. basically spoken poetry. I mean, tracing it back to the traditions of Edgar Allan Poe in the 19th century. This, of course, is the first major landmark to the development of hip hop. People had been incorporating rap into music. And at this time, there were other places in the Bronx and other people who were getting involved and developing this as a new musical form. Musicians like Grandmaster Flash, Africa Bombata, and not only the roots of hip hop and rap, but also the essentials of DJing were invented or, or were perfected mm -hmm. up here in the Bronx. I want to give one quick shout out to a man named Theodore Livingston. Doesn't he sound like a neighbor yeah, of one of the Morrises? I th was he of the Livingstons? <laughs> Didn't he used to dine with Lewis Morris? <laughs> governor, governor and uh, Theodore Livingston, um, different eras. And Theodore would actually go by the name Grand Wizard Theodore. It is popularly claimed that he invented the record scratch technique, which, of course, would dominate rap music and is a distinguishing feature of yeah, rap music yeah. in the 1980s. So this seems really positive. You know, this new creative force coming out of the Bronx. Was it being recognized around the world? Many of these acts would come down to Manhattan clubs in the late 1970s. And so they would already be a local sensation. But it wouldn't be until the early 1980s that it would be a kind of a national and then, of course, international impact. So that would be for that would it would be a few years. Instead, what most Americans were turning on their television to see is not this sort of like 
energetic, exciting new musical form. They right. were, in, for instance, in 1977, turning on the Game 2 of the World Series, in which the New York Yankees, the Bronx Bombers, were playing against Los Angeles. And instead of watching the game, they were seeing the Goodyear blimp turning its camera into the South Bronx and hearing Howard Cosell respond at the sight of a horrible fire. That's a live shot again of that fire in the South Bronx that Keith called to your attention just a few moments ago. Wonder how many alarms are involved, but as Keith said, the fire department really has its work cut out for it. And it would be in that same year, 1977, in October, when President Jimmy Carter, who was in New York uh, to do some work at the UN, invited Mayor Beam to his hotel near the United Nations. Mayor Beam got there and he said, we're going to hop in my cream-colored limousine and we're going to go for a tour of the Bronx. This was a surprise tour? Well, Hmm. he didn't pass it by City Hall first. And along with him was his Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Patricia Roberts-Harris. Greg, I have a copy of the um, article that ran on the front page of the New York Times the next day, October 6, 1977. That's the photo that ran at the top. And in this, you see... President Carter walking through what looks like a bombed out field, right? There's yeah. there are some burned out buildings in the background, but it's just kind of a wasteland. It's and like, he's Im- yeah, it's like images of Beirut from this period. He's got his hands in his suit pocket as he walks across this empty lot. The story explains in an effort to demonstrate a commitment to cities, President Carter in New York on United Nations Affairs made a sudden and dramatic trip yesterday morning to the South Bronx, where he viewed some of the country's worst urban blights. The presidential motorcade passed block after block of burned out and abandoned buildings, rubble-strewn lots and open fire hydrants, and people shouting, Give us money! And we want jobs! Twice, Mr. Carter got out of his limousine, walked around, and talked to people. He said the federal government should do something to help, but he made no specific commitment. After the tour, when Mr. Carter returned to the United Nations Plaza Hotel, he said, It was a very sobering trip for me to see the devastation that has taken place in the South Bronx in the last five years. But I'm encouraged, in some ways, by the strong effort of tenant groups to rebuild— I'm impressed by the spirit of hope and determination by the people to save what they have. I think they still have to know we care. So what exactly did President Carter review here? What area? What street? Well, he made two stops, uh, one on Washington Avenue at 167th Street, where 40 people had renovated and spruced up an old tenement building, which was a positive sign of change. But then he moved on to his second stop, which is from where this iconic photo comes. Mm -hmm. And this photo ran in papers around the country. Quote, On Charlotte Street, near Boston Road, not far from Cortona Park, the caravan stopped in the middle of a block on which all buildings on both sides had been demolished and the bricks had been bulldozed into heaps that in some places were eight feet high. So was this a positive thing to happen? The fact that you have a president walking through the worst area of right. the city and having it be broadcast around the world? Well, it certainly brought even more attention to the plight of the neighborhood and to the fact that part of the problem was a lack of federal funds as well. I think the administration of the mayor's um, ego was a uh, took a hit because they'd already sent around a redevelopment plan 
they didn't want to be portrayed as totally out of touch and doing nothing. But at the same time, this was just one of countless other streets that had succumbed to abandonment and arson in the 60s and 70s. In this particular street, Charlotte Street, got so bad in 1974, the borough government had actually taken it off the map of the borough. Erased it? Erased part of the streets as if it didn't even exist anymore. Well, Charlotte Street is vastly better today. It's back on the maps. How long did it take to to get it back up on its feet? Well, three years later, in August of 1980, it still wasn't back up on its feet when a presidential candidate named Ronald Reagan came through the area and made a similar stop on Charlotte Street expressly to point out the fact that nothing had been achieved by his opponent, despite all the promises of the Carter administration. And candidate Reagan knew that this was unfriendly territory to a Republican Mm -hmm. to go up to the South Bronx to say, look, here you've been supporting Democrats for decades, and this is where you've wound up. Why not take a chance on him and a new party and a new administration? Instead, he was met with chants and protests and, and dozens of people basically yelling at him to go back to California. Well, he was elected anyway. And change would come to Charlotte Street soon after. For, from 1983 to 1987, 89 suburban-style homes were built along Charlotte Street. And these were built because they were subsidized in different ways by the states. They were granted free land by the city. They were um, offered tax abatements by the city. Each of these homes cost $110,000 to build, but because of all these subsidies and these incentives, they were able to be sold for just $59,000. So there was this overarching idea that home ownership, small dwellings and home ownership would be the key to salvation in the South Bronx. That actually all of this blights, all of these lots that had been emptied and cleared because of abandonment and because of fire, well, actually, they presented a sort of opportunity for the city and the state and the federal government, but also community organizations to come together and to figure out a new productive way to rebuild in the South Bronx and to, and to do it in a way that was economically feasible. And this would work. And part of the reason it would work is because of the communities themselves. They finally had some resources. They were bonding together. And they were pushing back against many of these negative forces to slowly and very methodically make the borough that they loved to make their home a much more livable place. Not to say that it was easy for throughout the 80s and 90s, There were all kinds of difficulties that crept up against the best intentions of community groups and faith groups and governmental groups to renovate and rehabilitate the existing old buildings and to build new structures that fostered community. But against all odds and against all setbacks, a new South Bronx would emerge from all of their efforts. What was happening up here on Charlotte Street was indicative of what was happening throughout the South Bronx. Things have changed so much here in the Bronx, as a matter of fact, that the new concept of gentrification, which of course has transformed Brooklyn and other areas of New York City, is now reaching these areas of the Bronx. Areas that you would never have thought in a million years Mm. a couple decades ago would experience this kind of possible new development. So to cap off our discussion of the Bronx, 
We sat down with Stacy Toussaint of the Inside Out Tour Company, um, who actually does a few walking tours of the Bronx, including one called the Bronx Renaissance. We wanted to know what the Bronx Renaissance means to her and how she introduces that that concept and that history to people who join her on these walking tours. And here's a little bit of our chat with her. We are sitting with Stacy Toussaint from Inside Out Tours. You run a, a huge tour company with uh, several tours throughout the five borough area. Can you tell us a little bit um, about some of the tours that you have regularly been doing and how long you've been doing this? So Inside Out Tours does off the beaten path and hidden history tours of the city. We've been in existence for seven years and we go to all the boroughs. We do everything from slavery and the Underground Railroad tours to the Brooklyn Bridge to street art. Um, And we also go to the Bronx. So, yeah, in particular, there's two tours, I believe, at the Bronx. One of them is around Arthur Avenue. And the one that kind of like piqued our interest, especially as we were putting the show together, was one that was called the Bronx Renaissance Tour. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what that tour covers in a general in a general sense? Sure. So the South Bronx Renaissance Tour is focused on not looking at sort of the stereotype devastated Bronx, but rather the cultural and social um, renaissance that's happening right now in the Bronx. As part of that, we, um, we show everything from art in the Bronx to the Art Deco architecture. We talk about the hip-hop and how it became this global and cultural phenomena. Um, and we talk about salsa and doo-wop and other forms of art that came from the Bronx. And as well as really the core of it is that the resilience of the community, the decision the community made to reinvent itself and not to fall prey to this idea that it was this hopeless place. When do you believe that the, the, the community made this decision? Who, who was making the decision to reinvent the borough? I think when you look at a renaissance, it usually happens in several different parts of the community. On one hand, you have the young people and their vision of themselves through the hip-hop music. On the other hand, you had community organizations, community development corporations rising up and saying, we're going to take back these buildings and we're going to rehabilitate them and we're going to develop our communities. On another hand, you had the faith communities that were coming together and saying, this is not a hopeless community. So it was a unification of these different elements in the community and then those elements interfacing with both local and federal government. And this was happening in the 80s and 90s, well, early 2000s? if you think about sort of the, uh, the, the invention of hip-hop, you would have had that happening beginning in the 70s and then really developing into the 80s in a stronger way. And so these were really people celebrating themselves. For example, if we're going to start with hip-hop, we can talk about the fact that at the time, many um, arts programs were being cut, many music programs were being cut. And so you had someone like DJ Cool Herc who said, you know what, I'm going to take a record player and I'm going to make that into an instrument. And you had people performing in the streets uh, through breakdancing and you had the invention of graffiti and street art. All these forms that we now see really globally really started among these kids in the South Bronx who were seen as being hopeless and even criminal by some. 
Yeah, I always think that the the cultural aspect of the Bronx this time often gets overlooked, or certainly did back then because it was so organic. Now the um, the tour that you go on is it's all essentially in the South Bronx, right? Because it's a walking tour, right? Right. So it is the South Bronx Renaissance tour, and um, we we focus on different elements of the Renaissance. So whether you're looking at um, the art. Um, so we do stop by the Bronx Museum. We look at some of the local artists there. Or you're looking at the architecture. Many of these buildings along the Grand Concourse, um, they're being uh, rehabilitated. They're being being—they're not actually quite valuable as real estate. Right. Um, people are actually calling it Sobros <laughs> as they make up nonsensical <laughs> names for neighborhoods. Um, but what's important to remember is that all this is possible because the residents of the South Bronx were resilient, and they decided that they weren't going to flee. We have to remember that in the 60s and the 70s, people were fleeing. Right. Um, people called it a war zone. They even had a movie, Fort Apache, that made it look like as soon as you stepped outside, you were going to be shot. And so within this atmosphere was an atmosphere of people not investing in the community, people running away from the community. So it took the faith groups, it took these local organizations, these community development corporations to say, you know what, we live here and we're going to make this a better neighborhood. And so we're celebrating that. So it's the people who said, don't move, improve. Exactly. There were other people who came before us who would focus on stereotypes about the community and offend the community. Like let's go see the burned out Bronx tour. Right, or let's go see the ghetto. We've we even had reviews where people would say, "Oh, that was a great tour, but we expected to see, you know, burned out buildings and violence, and we wanted to see those things." And and we would respond online and say, "No, we intentionally do not show you those things because and that's not what the Bronx. Late. Yeah, that's not what the Bronx is about. Yeah." Can we talk for a minute about gentrification? Because sure. does gentrification pose a threat to the neighborhood, in your opinion? There's always going to be change in New York. And so it's a question of if you can find a way to manage that change in a way that's empowering to the community. Sometimes as a tour company, for example, we'll go into neighborhoods and people will say, you're bringing the tourists here, they're going to come here now, and then it's going to gentrify. Like, they're actually afraid that tourism means gentrification and they're going to be chased out of their own neighborhoods. Because then the coffee shops come and the upscale restaurants. You know, so you have the street art and then the hipsters move in and then they start pushing people out. And I understand that fear, um, but what we try to do is we try to really connect with the local community. Think about what the community needs and have tourism help the community as opposed to creating an oppositional re- uh, relationship. And part of that is understanding the community, understanding the history behind the community, understanding how we got here. You know, so much of this, um, the devastation that occurred had to do with the fact that the people in the neighborhood were not valued. You know, it was okay to run a highway through the neighborhood. It was okay to, let's burn that building for the insurance money. It was, insur- it was okay to do all kinds of things that and were And they really, had very little political They had no political presence. power. Right. Um, that's a very different way of interfacing with the community than if you come and you say, what do you need and how can we work with you to highlight the best and bring capital to your community? You said that it was uh, a coalition of faith groups, of business, of government, 
community organizations all working together yeah, to bring about this local positive local community change. organizations, um, what they did was they, they, they tried to figure out how can we go and rehabilitate these buildings? Um, how can we get grants? How can we get maybe uh, government funding in a way so that we can start rehabilitating these buildings? And they got better and better and better at it over time. Even at a time when the government was cutting back yeah, on, yeah. on assistance. Exactly. And then there's also the Casita movement, which was um, cultural celebrations outside of just hip hop, but dance and and celebrations of culture. There was community gardens. Um, They were able to go to some of these vacant lots and um, create these community gardens. And many of the the Puerto Rican migrants had been, some of them had been agricultural workers, and you were able to take those skills and transfer them to the community gardens. And so there were skills there. You know, there was talent there. It just wasn't being focused in such a way because of the history of the area. Yeah, what's marvelous about the community garden movement, and especially, is it's like a return to the basics. Because, yeah. I mean, this was originally farmland like 200 years ago. Right. And, you know, that it went to a sort of like a low point and has now been transformed, but into a way that's almost virtually back to what it was 200 years ago, which was replanting and uh, rebirth of these of these former lots right you're able to go there and you're able to see how the community introduced beauty in an area that was supposed to be devastated how long have you been doing this tour um, so this tour has been in existence um, for three years now. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious if you've seen in those three years, I know it's only three years, but have you seen any changes? Have you seen any developments in, in the Bronx? The South, in the South Bronx? I think people are being driven out of Brooklyn and being driven out of Manhattan. And they're, and they're seeing where they can live. And the Bronx is very close to Manhattan. It's an obvious choice. The only reason it's been ignored is because of the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing because that was the same argument a hundred years ago, you know, 120 years ago. People were being driven out of Manhattan and they were looking for more space of their own. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And where can we uh, send people who are interested in the tour? What's your website? What's Our website is www.insideouttours.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And so where does that leave us? today, the modern Bronx, the Bronx with the brand spanking new Yankee Stadium, which opened in 2009, a borough which is experiencing a resurgence of population. The population's actually growing. Well, if we've learned anything, Greg, in this three-part series of the Bronx, I think it's that it's complicated. And it's complicated (laughs) to try to assess and understand an entire borough in, say, three short episodes. But I hope that what we've done with these three shows is inspire you to go to the Bronx more, to study its history, to visit its many institutions where you can still see the history. And to get a better sense of its story and its its spirit and of the people who call it home. You can see photos, trailers from cult films and more (laughs) by going to our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also join us on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Now, Greg, you mentioned at the top of the show that you had an exciting announcement. So this is big news for the Bowery Boys. In one month, we will be debuting the first official Bowery Boys spinoff. So more news to come. Go to Twitter, go to Facebook, 
Instagram, clues will begin to reveal themselves in the next week or two. And in the next show will be the official trailer of the brand new spinoff. So whatever could it be? We'll also have more sneak peeks and VIP access to the show for our patrons. Those who have been so kind as to join us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, where for a small monthly amount, you can support us in our efforts to put out a new show every two weeks. And we're very serious when we say that we could not be doing the show without you and your support. And you guys on Patreon will get the sneak preview trailer before everyone else does. (laughs) So on that note... Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you in the Bronx. Bye.